Well, good everyone. Welcome to episode 15 of Sacrificial Succession. Our title today is Living Sacrifices. And Paul, it's so great to have you with us here again. Yep, great to be here. Paul, we're talking about Romans 12 verse 1, which many people um, have heard many times. I'm going to read it out again. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, on account of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Being a living sacrifice, Paul, it's not about being a martyr, is it? Oh, it's it's actually just the opposite. Uh, in fact, I think when I wrote to you um, uh, and just um, went through our notes, I, I made a note of that. I often tell that to myself when I, you know, because I, I put these into practice myself and, and, you know, challenge myself about them. And that's exactly right. You know, um, you can't be a dead sacrifice in this context. You've got to be a living <laughs> yeah. sacrifice. Um and so that's a really important distinction. <laughs> I mean, there are cases when, yes, uh, people are called upon, but this is not what we're talking about here. And it, that's not what the um, apostle was talking about in this passage either, because he goes on to talk about the transforming of our mind. And it's interesting, isn't it, that being a living sacrifice comes first, Um you know, I think especially in the West, we assume, um, you know, that if we get all the psychology right, you know, like it all happens in the head. Um, and it's interesting that here, that this is very practical. You're a living sacrifice. So it's actually talking here about physical stuff. So Paul, um, the, it's not just the mental. What do you think actually being a living sacrifice means? Like when, when, when you meditate on that? Well, you know, for me, it goes back to what I learned, you know, what we've talked about many times before, you know, in uh, East Timor, when we were running our project there, being a living sacrifice for our predecessors meant literally that they were willing to give up their leadership and hand it over to that next generation of um, potential leaders who really are, you know, on the scale of any sort of leadership capability, Clifton Strength Finders or, you know, Myers-Briggs or anything, uh, they were, you know, way down the bottom of the rung. And yet that's what we had to work with. And that's part of what being a sacrifice is, a living sacrifice is handing over to people and giving an opportunity to people who are not up to our caliber, perhaps. Um, you know, you think of Paul the Apostle. Were Timothy and Titus up to Paul's caliber? No. Absolutely not. Um, but he recognized that for his uh, work to be both sustainable and to be able to continue, in other words, for him to continue, uh, you know, he needed to be sacrificial and a, a living sacrifice. In other places, it's handing over to people from a different ethnicity, maybe here. And we've seen it in a number of organizations that I've mentioned, handing over to that next generation that we tend to avoid handing over to because you know, we don't trust them or they're not as experienced as we are um, and spending time with them and helping to sustain them. I was actually listening to uh, something about a, a church in the Middle East that is growing quite rapidly at the moment. And they, they're choosing people to be leaders 
who we in the West would not choose to be leaders. And it just, it got me thinking again about sacrificial succession because I feel like my life is revolving around this at the moment. <laughs> but but we, do we wait too long? And this is one of the things that you talk about, the leaders either, they either wait too long to go and to bring others in or they, um, or they go too early. But is it because of the Western way of looking at leaders now that we're, we're worried about um, litigation, we're worried about have they got the right qualities, have they got the right strength, have they got the right experience, all those kind of things. But we forget that we probably didn't have all those growing up. But like when we stepped into those leadership roles, we grew into them. Yeah. I mean, all of the issues that you um, note are very relevant and pertinent. Um, but the reality is that you face those sorts of issues in a lot of places. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, because th- this tends to be the argument of sophisticated nations. And that is we're too sophisticated to practice the simple things that were done in the past. There's an element of truth there. You know, you need professionals you need people who understand, um, you know, the legal aspects of something. Uh, you need people who understand technical aspects. The, the reality is they don't tend to be the leaders of organisations, let's be honest. Yes, people right. who tend to be the leaders of organisations don't tend to be from the professions unless it is a technically, uh, you know, technical profession industry and they don't tend uh, as a rule, to be from the legal profession, unless it's a legal profession industry. Mostly, leaders of organizations tend to be all rounders. That's just the reality. Um, and so, as a rule, you find the people that you need to help uh, complement or complete what you're doing. And I think the most important thing that we've found in, in all the projects that we've run where we've you know, very faithfully applied sacrificial succession with all the messiness, you know, that, that, that's associated with it is that it's about the previous generation of leaders staying around long enough to be a positive influence to the next generation. And yet that's not 10, that doesn't tend to be how we run Western organizations. Um, And it's interesting uh, there's, you know, there's been quite a bit of secular research um, and one that I particularly like from a guy called Jeffrey Sonnenfeld um, is that he talks about um, in a very well-known book called The Hero's Farewell. Um, and he talks about hero leaders. You know, there are kings and kings don't want to let go under any circumstances. There are generals you know, they're tough and strong and no one can, you know, fight the battle like they can. Um, and so they're the same. They sort of, they, they want to continue meddling long after the fact. Um, and then there are ambassadorial uh, leaders who are actually, you know, like a good ambassador, they make a representation. Uh, you know, Paul the Apostle talks about the best um, evangelists and soul winners and people who represent Christianity are not kings or generals. 
They're ambassadors. Why? Because ambassadors are representing the king or the government or the leaders. They're not representing themselves. Um, and so even from secular research, they're found to be the most sustainable leaders because they tend to continue to have input, ongoing input into the next generation, but they don't do that uh, with a level of self-interest that is detrimental to the organization itself or to that next generation of leaders. Well, we're talking about so many things here, and I think I need to pull that out and talk about that. Let me just go back a bit. You talk about often it's not the professionals who are the ones in charge, and that's right, because one of the things as a leader is you need to be able to survey this is what's going on in the broad spectrum, and if I need legal help, I get legal help. If I need accounting help, I get that. If I need advertising help or all those different things and pull those people together, and it's you're moving them forward, and actually, I was uh, in a board meeting of an organisation on Thursday, and um, which is very heavy on a specific type of profession. I won't name it. Um, but I, I said to them afterwards, you're not looking at the broader picture about what's going on. You're too caught up in what you're good at and what you're good at doing and stuff going on in relation to that and compliance issues and those kind of things. But you still need to move the business forward. Um which is which often they don't like it, educators don't make good entrepreneurs I've been finding you know because they're not thinking about that stuff outside the square um, and how do we move forward and and that happens in a lot of other professions as well they get stuck in what they're doing rather than not looking at the bigger picture um, which is part of I think what you're talking about here but it's also part of hang on we need to be training people up and even training people to have that broader experience, even though they may be specialised in a particular area, to be a good leader, they need to be much broader than what what they are trained in. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things I've always tried to do and I've always recommended for all of our leaders in our projects across the world is two things when thinking about a mentor or someone who can uh, help us and guide us. The first thing is don't pick someone like yourself. Yes. Um, And secondly, if you possibly can, don't pick someone from the same profession or area of interest or expertise as yourself. Why? Because they tend to give you the same advice and information, you know, and that iron does not sharpen, you know, the same gauge uh, of iron does not sharpen another piece of iron. It's got to be a different gauge of iron. It's got to be stronger, harder, different. Um, and so that's a really important principle that I've always tried to model myself and I encourage my uh, teams to do the same. Why? Because it gives exactly what you're talking about earlier, Wes, with the board. Um, when you get the same sort of people with the same sort of expertise, you tend to get the same worldview. And as a result, you tend to get an echo chamber where people are either arguing about the most minute Um, differences within that area or they're agreeing with each other about a broader picture that they don't actually they can't see properly because they're all looking through the same glasses which which means that you 
as a leader have to kind of break out of your own, I'm going to say mindset, but actually your own training and things like that to see the bigger picture and the broader picture of what's going on, which is really what a lot of what we're talking about here is because we are, we are so focused on, but this is what we think should happen, but it's not the case. Uh, absolutely. And I, I suppose for me, I was very blessed in growing up to learn from tribal people um, who are largely illiterate. Um, and yet their knowledge of the bush, their knowledge of the world, their knowledge of life um, was, you know, um, equal to any highly educated person, provided you took the time to listen to the different perspectives that they had, you know, and local knowledge or what's called local intelligence, of course, in recent times has become a very valuable field of knowledge, especially in areas and places where there's a great deal of uncertainty. Why? Because your conventional Western scientific method and way of thinking is a really great foundation on which to build things, but it's not necessarily the building blocks to build a structure on, especially when you're in places that are volatile or in times of great uncertainty, like we all face uh, at the moment. So Paul, that's really about being on the ground and not isolating yourself in an ivory tower, but actually getting out and talking to customers, talking to suppliers, talking to employees, talking to people in, in various different um, areas that perhaps you wouldn't normally go to. So you can see that bigger perspective about what's going on as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was Jack Welch, if I'm not mistaken, uh, from, is that right? Anyway, a couple of the different CEOs I can remember reading, one was from the um, from a bank, but they would go and have lunch once a week, say with the janitor uh, or someone who was completely different to them in the organization just to spend time with them and hear what they thought about things um and i think it humbles you for starters and it also really gives you some great perspectives on things that you wouldn't normally see it's a it's a good idea and i remember also hearing a ted talk about having lunch with your enemies (laughs) like for those you know actually to sit down because Often, and I, I remember someone who I work with closely who has, um, let's just say, a very different political persuasion to me. And um, he, he, when we got together, he said to me, Wes, you, the difference between us two is actually not that far. And um, in the end, I actually <laughs> went out and handed out how to vote cards for him, <laughs> even though every part of my bone, because I respected him and honoured him. Uh, for for who he was, and we we able we were able to work together very well, even though we had some different ideologies in that regard. Absolutely, and I um, when I was um, one of our project, well, all of our projects have struggled with, you know, uh, the the idea and and the practice of handing over leadership to former enemies or people that we might consider enemies. And I remember one of the leaders of our project in Indonesia um, ver- being very specific and intentional about it and saying, you know, for me, um, I am going to seek out my enemies. I'm going to proactively seek them out. I'm going to visit them. I'm going to spend time with them. I'm going to give them gifts. 
not to bribe them, but to show that I care for them. And, uh, you know, this is a, a man who's put his money where his mouth is. He's been imprisoned many times um, for uh, doing the right thing, not the wrong thing. Uh, and yet, you know, for me, that's someone who models it really well because that's what he's willing to do. And one of the other topics that we already talked about was in Myanmar where, you know, one of the greatest struggles for the first generation leaders that we worked with was that by default, because of working amongst people who were their enemies, they were needing to get past this sense of, well, you know, why would we hand over, you know, leadership? Why would we make our successors um, people who are our enemies? Um, that was just part of the project. You know, and I suggest that, you know, with the way that Christianity has uh, gone out around the world, that's pretty much the practice yes. um, of Christianity in its true sense of the word. And so, yeah, that's one thing we've learned is that it's all, one of the greatest challenges, but it's also one of the greatest victories um, when you see that happen. And boy, does it send a loud and clear message out to the, the, the society and the country and the people around us that we are going to do things differently. Um, it, because so often the world is very divided, isn't it? And it's actually about bringing them together. Doing that it's thing. divided. I mean, in the West, we don't tend to be divided in that way, although if we're honest, we still hold, you know, many of those politically incorrect views. It's just yeah. that we're not allowed to talk about them anymore. Yeah. But um, if you want to look at the way in the West, where there's still a great deal of discrimination, the discrimination is between generations, yeah. you know, and you only have to look at the statistics. We've already covered the statistics, um, whether that's in um, secular organizations, charities, nonprofits, uh, churches. The, there's very little statistical difference, which shows that the older generation really has no intent uh, or even trust in the next generation. If you look at the way that successes are being prepared, which they're not. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, see, Paul, part of this is that we need to allow the spirit to transform us, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> which is which is really about what uh, Romans 12 is talking about too, that we need to see and we need to allow the spirit of God to do that because we so do, often, but we yeah. also need to take action. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I think that's why the, there's an order with these verses here. We're charged to be living sacrifices first. Um, the, the be, you know, transform your mind that comes after, you know, I, I think if a, you know, if a, if a modern Westerner perhaps was writing it, they would have put the, um, the transform your mind first, because, you yeah. know, if you get your mental state right and you're all thinking right in your head, uh, no, we have to take action. Anybody who exercises knows that. Um, doesn't matter what you think about exercise, you've got to actually do it. 
Um, and yes. you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter what you think, no matter how positive you are about it in your head, at the end of the day, you've got to make some sacrifices, you know? Um, physically, you're a living sacrifice. Yes. You know, you've got to make all that effort. Uh, yes. Then you'll start to transform your mind. And the same thing happens here. If we're not willing to take the steps that are needed to be a living sacrifice, and in this case, we're talking sacrificial succession, we're not willing to identify those potentials, no matter how poor they may appear to us at the time. We're not willing to spend time with them. We're not willing to hand over and and help to sustain. There's no way our minds are going to be transformed because we're, we're providing a mental assent to something that requires action. <laughs> if we don't do, it's, it's, um, uh, what did you say? We, we need to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things I've been, uh, focusing on a bit lately is the fact that obedience is everything. You know, we've got to get out there and do it and get it done. We and do. I, I can remember being on a board once, um, very, similar to what you're talking about, Pro- professionals, technical experts in, a, in, a, in an area of high-level expertise. I was probably one of the only ones that didn't have that expertise. And so they perhaps brought me in for my entrepreneurial uh, insights. But I can remember saying to them one day, not long before I uh, resigned from the board, I said, are we in business to have a business or are we in business to do business? Yeah. Because I said, if we're in business to have a business, you have a business. And it was a pretty good one. But I said, we're not doing business because every time we meet, we're talking about the business that we have. We're not out there doing business. And I said, if you're not here to do business, then there's no point having me because you've already got what you need if you don't plan to do any more than what you currently have. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's good. Uh, Paul, you referred to Jeffrey Sonnefield earlier on uh, and in his book, What Makes Great Boards, you talk about the role of CEOs being invaluable as a mentor and sounding board for current leaders to pass CEOs. So often we see this, that the CEOs come in, they have, they have a contract for a certain period of time, they leave and that's it. It's all over Red Rover. But actually the research is showing that they need to stay around. And, and, actually, and Paul huh, was a great example of that as well to, to, yeah. and, yeah, and again, referring to the hero's farewell, which you're talking about before, is that um, the the evidence shows that if they do stay around, it, it not only gives stability, provides mentorship, but it helps to grow the organization as well. Yeah, you know, and Jesus said to his disciples, "I'm not going to leave you as orphans." Yeah, um, and so the, these are really critical principles that we often don't think through. Um, and that's where this sense of, you know, well, we're a little bit too sophisticated now for these sorts of things. Um, well, I suggest we perhaps sort of pull back a little bit um, and and not get so sort of high and mighty with our, you know, great levels of sophistication these days. Uh, it needs to be pretty simple. And, and that is, is that as Jeffrey Sonnenfeld has proven, um you need experience 
in your boards. And the best people with the best experience are those that have invested a lot in the business and who can continue to invest in the business or organization so that the next generation can receive that the guidance that they need. Uh, because, you know, it, if you're not doing it that way, then you're either always going to get the sort of professionals and technocrats that we've just talked about in, in any organization that's highly sophisticated, or you're going to have consultants. Um, they don't have skin in the game. They might be experts in their fields, and I'm not knocking them. Uh, that was most of what my business was about, um, was providing advice and consultancy and expertise. But the reality is in an organization, the people who understand best what needs to be done are the ones who've invested the most. And they're the people that have spent time in the business and have skin in the game. Now, obviously, the caveat always is if they haven't been detrimental to the business, and that's the yeah. point that Sonnenfeld yeah. makes, is a good former CEO or leader in the organization is not someone who's going to try and meddle in the current affairs. And they're also not going to try and be detrimental by their presence. So their input is positive and they're able to guide and remind and teach because that's what helps to protect that next generation, perhaps from making some of those decisions that they lack in terms of experience and judgment that only time and, and, and sort of long-term investment in a particular field gives you. That's, they're just the realities. And it's that willingness of the next generation to listen is key part of that as well. But so, so this is why though um, the whole one, the whole things behind sacrificial succession is we're about building relationship. It's about fathering and mothering as we talked about two episodes ago and, and being there so that the relationship is there because if the relationship is there, that's not going to work. And which is very yeah. I mean, and it's interesting if you look at the writer of Hebrews. I think it's in chapter five, where he's talking there about the relationships that you have as you grow to maturity, and it's interesting that he uses the analogy of a family. You know, you've got babies, you've got children, you've got young men and women, you've got old men and women, um, and it's more of an analogy than actually um, looking at these uh, the generations per se but what the point he's making is that you know there's a progression in life and people who have been through it are great um, backstops as well as uh, you know guides and and helpers uh, to that next generation and it's very interesting you say that uh, there's been some research done by a, a lady called Cheryl Forbes. Uh, she she wrote a book called The Religion of Power. Um, and it's interesting there that uh, what, what she talks about, she's not talking about sacrificial succession or even necessarily leadership per se, but what she's talking about with um, relationships between people is what she calls mutual humility. 
And the example she gives is when, you know, we go and visit other people for a meal or to have a coffee or a tea together, especially in the context of a home, perhaps rather than say a coffee shop, is you, you kind of mutually humble yourself by sharing a meal or a drink together in the context of the home. And she makes that point that that is an antithesis of the religion of power where, you know, I'm important, more important than you and we work out all those hierarchical things because it's exactly right what you say. As much as it is the responsibility of the predecessors to humble themselves enough to be able to hand over leadership, it's really interesting that there needs to be a mutual yes. um, humility by the person receiving the leadership, the successor, so that they understand that they've received that as a gift to some extent. It's not their own personal effort that was involved. And any of us who are followers of Christ, um, we need to understand that principle as well. Yes. Uh, that's what grace and mercy is all about. Yes. Um, it's not that we don't have a responsibility to do something. You know, Paul talks about the works that have been prepared in advance for us to do. But the first step is to understand that it's not by our efforts, but it's by the grace. And really, we're, this is what we're, we're touching on here with living sacrifices, because um, it's the same writer who's talking about it, is that we will have a transformation of our minds, both as predecessors and successors, when we start to act as living sacrifices. And you can't do that when you're dead. No. And you can't do that when you're not there. Yes. I use the word grace there. And, and I, 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 I'm seeing that come up a lot more in management books. I don't know what's going on there. It's just like we have this grace that we have been given and we need to be gracious in situations too and allow that grace to come forward as well. And I was just thinking of a circumstance where I had to step in the organization I was working for. For some reason, the, the CEO and the deputy CEO had to step out. <laughs> they were away on different things. And I was put in, in charge for a period of time. And I thought, great, I'm going to do all these different things. But you get into that role and you realize the constraints and things that you're actually under. Like you can bring in some change, but you, but, but you also have to take into account what's already there and work with that to move forward. And I think people forget that. Um, yeah. Well. And again, you, you know, you're just, you're touching on what is so critical to sacrificial succession and, and everything to do with leadership. But in particular, when we're talking about relationships between generations, and that is it's grace being gracious. It's about trust. It's about trusting each other and you get none of that if you don't spend time in situations where your credibility as a living sacrifice is actually tested out, yes. you know, um, how do I respond when someone who is not of my status perhaps addresses me in a way that I didn't particularly like? That speaks volumes to the next generation about how they're going to treat people when they're in leadership. And so, you know, being a living sacrifice 
is all the situations where we have the opportunity to model what that means so that that next generation of leader can actually see what that means and what we expect of them uh, through the lives that you know that we lead i always say to my kids just about every day don't forget salt and light salt and light um you know and i say that to myself as well because that's what being a living sacrifice is all about how can we bring that salt and light to to every situation that we face and, and i think uh i'm very i've been very reminded even this morning in a previous meeting that um it is very easy to look at the negative things rather than the positive and to, to, to not look at the bigger picture about what's going on and the bigger picture about what God is doing rather than getting so caught up on the negatives and focusing on the negatives and focusing on what's going wrong, rather how can we switch it to make it go right? And especially with the next generation, you know, let's be yeah. honest. Um, that they don't think like us you were just mentioning uh, you know when in our in our sort of um talk earlier this morning about you know playing a game with your family and just how the next they don't they don't think like we do um and so you've just got to accept that that's part of being a living sacrifice is recognizing that the next generation are not going to think and do things exactly like us um, you just got to accept that. That's just the way it is. That's the reality. Um, but it's where relationship is so powerful. Yeah. And actually, and I think that's in previous generations, relationship was so key. I think even in our generation, we've lost some of that relationship thing. And then in the next generation down, it doesn't seem to be there as strong either, but to actually to put that back in place and realize that we, it is business is actually all about relationships. Ministry is all about relationships and to come and get that right is so key. Um, which comes back to being an ambassador for Christ and actually, which is one of the whole themes of this morning's. Um, yeah. Cause as an ambassador, your relationships are key. Yeah. You know, Cause you don't have the power of a King or a general. That's just, that's the reality of the matter. Yes. Um, you, what you have is the power of your relationships. Yes. And what you represent. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's key too, isn't it? Like you are representing, like when you're an ambassador of a country, you're representing the views of the country. Uh, whatever the, the government that you're representing says, this is what you need to put that forward. And that means keeping your mouth shut sometimes, even yeah. though you have different personal opinions. And I, and I think that is, is saying, okay, hang on a minute, I am Christ ambassadors here. How would he want me to re- represent him in this situation? Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for today, Paul. And I think Thanks, Wes. the key takeaway today, how are you acting as a living sacrifice and how are you sustaining your successes? And Lord, help me to be a living sacrifice by being a good ambassador for my successes. Well, uh, thanks for listening. Say, if you haven't downloaded the book, go to sacrificialsuccession.com and we'll see you next week.